Welcome to Evangel Church. Our mission is to bring people into a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information, visit us at evangelchurch.com. All right. <laughs> I promised you this will be a fun series of messages. Oh, I got to see, just a show of hands. Does anyone remember that commercial viewing from like the 60s? You're dating yourselves. In the late 60s, early 70s, that was playing. I don't know about you, but the game of life, if it only were that easy, right? If you could start out on Millionaire Acres or Lane or whatever it's called, uh, with some money and a car and all those things, uh, it can be great. If only you could pick a card and decide that, hey, I'm going to Harvard, no, no, no issue. Uh, that would be amazing. Well, whenever we grow up playing these games, um, I, I was always learning things about life. When I play Monopoly, I'd learn something. I think I learned my competitiveness from Monopoly and from late night uh, strong conversation, right, around the table. I, I almost, uh, I really think that I, I made great progress in landing Mandy as my girlfriend by losing to her in checkers. So <laughs> games can, uh, can be a great place for us to connect and learn some lessons. And I thought, hey, I believe we can learn some things about God's word and about who he is from some of the games that we played whenever we were uh, children and when we were growing up. And I don't want to just say children because maybe you still play many of these games. Here's what I promise you. By the end of this series, you're not going to look at some of these games the same again. In fact, my prayer is this, that if you were to walk through the aisles of a toy store, you were to see a game sitting on your shelf, you wouldn't just be reminded of that game. You'd be reminded of a truth from God's word that applies to your life. And I believe that if we continue to allow those things to remind us of God's word, that they'll change us uh, for the better. So uh, today we're gonna jump into uh, God's word. If you have your Bible, would you open with me to Acts chapter two? We're gonna be in Acts chapter two and uh, we're gonna get into our first game of the games of life as we look at Acts chapter two. And this was one that I grew up playing and that I really enjoyed and maybe you did as well. I'm gonna show you another uh, commercial to introduce this game to you today. And uh, it's one that maybe you'll remember as well, so let's take a look at that. The name of the game is Connect Four. Gotcha, four cross. Hmm, one more game. Object, connect four of your checkers in a row while preventing your opponent from doing the same. But look out, your opponent can sneak up on you and win the game. I won. Where? I can't hear diagonally. Pretty sneaky, sis. Connect Four, the vertical checkers game from Milton Bradley. All right, you're thinking, what are you talking about, Pastor? Connect Four, are you serious? Yeah, you're in church today, and we're going to talk about Connect Four. Now, if you remember it, does anyone, everyone remember Connect Four? Can I see, has everyone played Connect Four before? All right, I'm not going to spend too much time, but let me just refresh you on it. You have two different color checkers, and the goal of the game is simple, right? It's to connect four. And so there you are trying to fulfill that. And every time you put one down, here's the only issue that makes the game complicated, is that every time you put down a checker, your opponent gets to put down a checker. And his goal is the same as your goal, not just to connect four, but to stop you from connecting four. And so you put one here, he'll go here, you try to put one here, he'll block you right here. And so what you'll do is you'll continue to go on and playing this, and it can get very frustrating. In fact, um, I'm sure that there are some homes that the Connect Four game got flipped over and spilled out all over the place because you just couldn't quite get it. It was fun this week as we were opening this thing up and, and finding a life-size Connect Four board. Isn't this beautiful? Uh, that we had some of our, there are a few children in our church that are part of our children's ministry. And uh, they were standing in the hallway waiting for mom. And I said, you know what? I said, you guys want to test this out for me? I need to make sure that it works. 
And about 45 minutes later, they had played about 20 games of Connect Four. They loved it. Uh, it can, you can get lost with this. But the goal at the end of the game is to win, is to connect the four. And if you connect the four, it brings about great victory and uh, maybe some celebration, a little bit of gloating over your siblings or whoever else you're playing. Um, here's a few things I want you to remember as we jump into God's word today. First, it's all about connecting four. Three won't do it. Two are not enough. Just one is just one. Connecting the four is what the goal of it is. And also, every time that you make a move, your opponent is making a move as well, trying to block your way. So let's take a look together at Acts chapter 2, because I think that when we think about connecting four, and we look at God's word, there's a, there's, there's a, a passage of scripture that shows a glimpse of the early church. It's a glimpse of the early followers of Jesus. Those that had seen with their own eyes that he had risen from the dead, what we celebrated last Sunday morning on Easter Sunday, that he was alive. And that when he ascended into heaven, he left his followers. They began to go around sharing the message of what Jesus had come to do. And because of that, the church began to grow. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell and peoples were filled with the Holy Spirit. And on that day, thousands were added to their number, as in one instance they were saved. And so what we get to is take a look at is a picture of the early church. And what they did was, no, no joking about it, they connected four things. And those four things, when they connected them, it brought about life change, transformation of the power of the Holy Spirit moving through them. So let's take a look together at Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Here's what it says. It says, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Say the apostles' teaching. And to fellowship. Say fellowship. To the breaking of bread. Breaking of bread. And prayer. Say prayer. That's it. These four things, they connected them, church. They connected them when they connected them. What we will see by the end of this message is the supernatural was taking place in their midst every day. They connected those four. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at God's word today. And I want you, if you're taking notes, to write down two passages of scripture that are worth you reading as a follow-up to today's message. And here's where they are. First one is in John chapter 15. John chapter 15, this is a part of Jesus' last moments that he spent with his disciples before he was betrayed and before he ultimately went to the cross. And during this final meal when he's sharing uh, these final words, they're very precious words. In fact, if you read from John chapter 13 all the way to John chapter 17, it's worth reading as his final discourse, his farewell to his followers. But in John chapter 15, Jesus says this, remain in me and I will remain in you. It means abide in me, stay connected to me. His goal was that they would stay, his followers would stay connected to him and they would stay connected to God. He said, in fact, that apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. You can't do anything if you're disconnected from me. So you must be connected to me. He said, if you remain in me and my word remain in, remains in you, you're going to bear much fruit. We want lives that are going to bear fruit. So it's all about connecting to him, connecting to God. If you go then, the next passage I want you to write down is John chapter 17. We're only going to get to explore two verses of that today in the message. But in John chapter 17, Jesus is praying for his disciples. And when he prays for them, he's praying this, that they would be connected to one another. That they would be connected to one another in a way that when people looked at their unity, they would begin to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That somehow the unity and the connection of his followers 
would make them believe that Jesus was who God's word says he is. So it's all about, Jesus said, being connected to God and being connected to one another. And when we can do that, and when we can connect these four elements we see in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we're connecting with God and we're connecting with one another in a way that brings about the supernatural, in a way that changes lives, in a way that impacts eternity. So let's take a look together here at at these four elements, and let's explore them one at a time. We're going to look at the first one. It's the apostles' teaching. It says they continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And so as they did that, they're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They want to sit under their instruction. So what does this mean to devote yourself to the apostles' teaching? Let's take a look uh, at a very famous passage of Scripture, one that I'm sure you've heard if you've been in church for some time. It's Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. And many of you could probably say it from memory. It says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now that verse we're very familiar with, but there is a verse that continues what Jesus is saying in verse 20. Let's take a look at that for a moment. It says, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm so thankful that Jesus promises that he'll never leave us or forsake us. That he's with us even to the end of the age. But he gives a special instruction that a part of making disciples, a part of the the goal of every disciple, every follower of Jesus, is to teach new disciples, new followers of Jesus, to obey all the commands that Jesus had given to his followers. And so when we look at the apostles' teaching that they were devoting themselves to, they were walking in obedience to what Jesus said to them. You see, when Jesus was with his disciples, even if you look in John chapter 15, he says this, if you love me, you're going to obey my commands. If you remain in me, meaning you obey my commands, you're abiding in me. My word is abiding in you. His word meant what I've told you, what I've called you to, what I've commanded of you, what I've called you to follow that you would follow through on it. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do it. And so what they were doing is these followers of Jesus, these disciples, the apostles, they were following through. They were teaching the people to obey everything that Jesus had commanded them. Jesus shared it with them and now they were sharing it with all the followers together and those people were devoting themselves to that. Now we have today, we have God's word that's revealed to us. Many of those teachings, many of the things that have been shared have been recorded and are now what we know as the New Testament of scripture. And so the apostles' teaching would have included them looking back into the Old Testament, talking through it, pointing to Jesus, talking about Jesus and what he called them to do. We find that in the Gospels, the stories about Jesus, the commands of Jesus, the word of Jesus, and the teaching of the apostles we see in the rest of the New Testament. And so how do we then as a church, as believers today, how do we begin connecting these four? We begin By devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching, devoting ourselves to God's word and knowing him as he's revealed himself through his word. Jesus said again, if you love me, you'll do what? You'll obey my commands. And I love Jesus, and I'm sure that you do as well. And I want you to know that he hasn't left us alone. He's given us his Holy Spirit, but he's also given us his word so that we could walk in his wisdom and in his truth and in his life. And it calls us to obedience. Our life should be shaped by our relationship with God, and our relationship with God should be shaped 
by how we know him and how he's revealed himself to us. And it starts with his word. It starts with his word. We need to be people of the word. We need to allow that to be what shapes our mind and shapes our thoughts and shapes the way that we act and respond to different things. There's a problem, though, in the world around us. We are not being shaped by the word anymore, and we're not being shaped by Christ and by his spirit. Oftentimes, you know what we're shaped by? We're shaped by the world around us. We're conforming to whatever it is that we come around and come in contact with. We have a a disease, I think, that overcomes us as believers sometimes. I'm going to call it chameleonism. And chameleonism, you know what that is? It means that we blend in with whatever environment we find ourselves in. Come on, someone. We blend in. We're very good at blending in. We don't want to offend anyone. So whenever we're at work and they're telling those jokes and they're talking that way, we want to just blend in. And whenever we're around other people and they're starting to gossip and share things, and we, oh, you know, it, we just blend in. We get involved. We, we find ourselves oftentimes, and if you were honest with yourself today, you may agree with me, you find yourself compromising in areas that you know you shouldn't be compromising in. But it's what everyone's doing. And so before long, your actions, your attitudes, the way that you live, the way that you act, the way that you carry on, and, and the way that you behave is shaped by the world around you. Before long, your thinking is shaped by that. Not by God's word, not by what he's revealed to you. Well, the Bible calls us to the very opposite. It says in Romans chapter 12, we're, we're warned. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, to not conform to the pattern of this world. But to what? Be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can know and test and approve what God's will is. His pleasing and perfect will. That can only come, though, through our revelation of him, through knowing him, through knowing him and then walking in his ways. And he's revealed himself through his word. And so sitting under that teaching, sitting under his instruction is vital if we are going to walk with him and begin to connect these pieces. So the first thing we do is we say, yes, I want to get connected to God. I want to begin to connect in that way and I want to sit under his word and walk in obedience to it. But the opponent... The enemy that we have will often throw something around us and will throw temptation and throw people and throw situations in our way. And instead, we'll start to conform to this world and let that be the way that we live our lives. We stop treating one another the way that God's word calls us to treat each other. We start treating each other the way the world says we should treat each other. If you're taking your cues from your surroundings and not from God's word, then I'm praying that this is your starting point. This is where you could look at Um, yourself and look at the Lord and say, Lord, do I need to return to your word? Do I need to return to devoting myself to the apostles' teaching so that I can grow and become the one that you have called and created me to be? The second area that we are called to connect, and we see it in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, is with the fellowship. And so with the fellowship means not just friendships, not just having some friends in church. The fellowship was something that was much deeper that was much more beautiful than I think what you could ever imagine from the word. When we normally think of fellowship, I think, I, I think of fellowship in church and I think of a potluck. Does anyone else? I think of everyone coming together in a fellowship hall and uh, eating meals that everyone has, uh, has brought around and there is cabbage and yams and all kinds of things uh, that, are, that are being shared and everyone's having a good time, but maybe you don't know any of the people really. Um, and uh, and, that, and that's it, that's fellowship. Well, that's a part of it but it's much deeper, it's much more beautiful. And we see a picture of this in the early church, in the New Testament church in the book of Acts. I mean, the way that they connected with one another, 
The way that they connected with one another is beyond what many of us have ever experienced in all of our years in following Jesus. It was beautiful. It was transformative. And it was something that the world around them paused and said, what is going on? When we see them, we have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that God sent him because of what's happening among those believers and followers of his. When we see this, there's a word that's used, and it's used here, and, and it's used another 20 times throughout the rest of Scripture uh, for the idea of this fellowship or this connection. The word is koinonia. It's a Greek word. It's a Greek word that goes beyond friendship, goes beyond acquaintance, goes beyond connection and communion. It goes to a deep sense of biblical community, of a unity that comes about that is so devoted, that is so connected, that it must be uh, ordained by the Holy Spirit and connected by the Holy Spirit. It was about a common life that was shared together. And the community was this, a common sense of unity among the believers and among those that called themselves followers of Jesus. They resembled more than just a group of people. They resembled more than just a club. They resembled more than just a bunch of followers or disciples. They were a connected bunch, a connected group, experiencing this beautiful idea of koinonia among one another. And so with this, to understand what it is, if you'd really like to explore that further, I think you should look at some of the verses inside of the scriptures that you'll see um, that have the word one another and how people treated one another or they were supposed to treat one another. And I'm going to go through these pretty quickly for you this morning. But it says this. The Bible says that we should be devoted to one another. These are all pictures of koinonia, devotion to one another, honoring of one another, living in harmony with one another, accepting one another, serving one another in love, being kind and compassionate to one another, admonishing one another, encouraging one another, spurring one another on towards love and good deeds, offering hospitality to one another, loving one another. This is a sense of true biblical community. Doesn't that sound beautiful? Doesn't that sound encouraging? Doesn't that sound up, uh, uh, up, uh, just life-giving, I, I guess the word would be? This is what we're called to, and this is the picture that we get. This is when we say they were connected to one another, connected in fellowship and koinonia. It was all of this. This is what they were doing for one another. They weren't devouring one another. They weren't tearing one another down. They weren't talking about one another behind one another's backs. They, they were doing the opposite. And because of that, God was doing something beautiful among them. When we see this, there were three common things that were common in this sense of koinonia, this sense of unity that was there. They had a common purpose. Their purpose was to live for Jesus, to walk with Jesus, to have relationship with Jesus. The Bible says in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, that the congregation of those who believed were in one heart and one soul. They were in one heart and one soul. They had a common sense of purpose. The Bible continues to say that when they were together, they were together. They were together in one place. The second thing, they had a common sense of place. They were in a common place together. I want to tell you that we cannot be connected if we don't spend time together. We don't just get connected by sitting in a pew next to one another and greeting each other. We give you about 30 real seconds a week to connect to one another. You know what it is? After we finish praying and we say, connect with one another before you're seated. That's it. That's your sense of biblical community that you get. 
the rest of its teaching and worship and prayer and maybe whatever happens in the foyer if you're willing to connect with one another out there. But I want to tell you, God has something greater in store. He has a greater vision for the body of Christ and it's about us being connected in koinonia and real biblical community with one another. So there's a common sense of purpose, a common sense of place, and a common sense of possessions, meaning that people are radical in their generosity towards one another. It says in Acts chapter 2, verse 44 to 45, you'll see the common place, the common purpose, and the common possessions. It said this, those that had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions, and they were sharing them with all as anyone might have a need. And then again, the rest of verse 40, of, of 4, 4, uh, 32 said this, that, after that they were together in one heart and one soul, not one of them claimed anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. Could you imagine being in a place where you thought that it was yours, but it wasn't really yours. Someone else comes and they grab it. Someone else comes and they drive it away. And you thought, I thought that was mine. Some of the dads in the room say, I, I know, that's called my family. I thought I bought it and I thought I owned it, but now it's not my name or the TV. I bought it. I remember it. I have it on my credit card bill. But my children walk in and it's theirs now. Um, the car I thought was mine, now it's theirs. Um, and, and do you resent that? Do you get upset over that? No, you say, that's family. That's family. Do you see the picture of family of Koinonia that's beginning to form among the early church? Now, you could look to your left and your right and say, I, I love them, but they're not, they're not taking the remote from me. And they're not getting in my car and driving it. And, you know, I don't know, Pastor. Maybe the Holy Spirit really needs to break out in revival before this kind of stuff would happen among us. But I want to tell you that I've seen pictures of this inside of our body, inside of churches. Whenever you truly get connected to biblical community, you start to be, you're willing to share with one another in a way you would have never expected before. Your heart begins to open because you really begin to connect as family with each other. And when someone is going through a difficulty, when someone has been in the hospital, you're there lining up, making meals for them and sending them. You're doing everything you can to go above and beyond because not just it's the right thing to do, because you love them and because you care for them, because when one hurts in the body, we all hurt. You only know if the other's hurting if you're connected to them, right? And connection happens. Life-changing connection happens in circles, not in rows. You're in rows right now. But we believe that life-changing connection and relationship happens in circles. That's why we're always sharing with you about small groups. That's why today when you received a bulletin, there's a card in there for small groups because we believe that that life-changing connection happens in those small intimate gatherings when people are willing to open up their homes. And I want to tell you there are over 20 people, 20 homes that are willing to be open for that kind of connection to take place. And I know there's an opportunity in front of so many of you. And I encourage you even now, take out that card. If you haven't yet prayed about it, pray about it even now. Think about it. Think about taking that step to get connected. Because you could say, you know, I'm going to take that step to get connected. And then what will happen is your schedule will get busy at work and all kinds of things will start to get thrown at you. Don't let those obstacles overcome what God wants to do in those places of community. I've heard the stories. I've seen it with my own eyes. How when you're willing to take that step, to really open up and to get connected in that way. God meets you in a beautiful, beautiful way. So encourage, I encourage you, get connected. It's not too late to sign up for one of those groups. They're starting this week. We'd love to see you join up and start to experience some of the connection that the scripture tells us about right here. Whenever we see this kind of connection, the people um, 
come together and they're fulfilling what Jesus prayed for. John chapter 17, Jesus prayed that we would be one just as he and the Father are one. And that when people would see that, they would see and believe that Jesus was sent into the world. Look what it says in John 17. Let's skip to verse 21. It says that they may all be one. This is Jesus praying. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. We are meant to experience the depths of unity as a body and as believers that would result in the world looking at us and saying, surely God has sent his son into the world because of what we're seeing among them. Could you imagine that your life and that your relationships are meant to paint that picture to the world around us? Because the world around us is a very divided world. The world around us is one that's caught up in dissensions and factions and gossip and backbiting and all kinds of things that cause pain. There are people that will be willing to tear one another down with their words. They'll be willing to do things that hurt and wound each other. Do you know why when you look at the unity that God's spirit can bring about in the body of Christ and you would look there and see the miraculous? Do you know why? Because we're broken people. Come on, someone, right? We're broken. The world around us is broken. And we're hurting people. We have been hurt. We've experienced hurt. And guess what? When you put hurting people together, you know what happens? People can get hurt. They can get more hurt. And so the world around us is a picture of much of that brokenness, much of that hurt, much of those wounds. And we've experienced many of those in our own lives. And to the point that we have experienced healing in those areas, God has worked. And in areas we're still holding on to, there are places that we have become offended, we have become hurt, we have become wounded. And unfortunately, it happens inside the church and it happens outside of the church. You might have something in your past where you've been hurt by someone close to you. Maybe it's in your family. Maybe it was in church. Maybe it was somewhere else in life or in a relationship that was close to you. But you've been walking around with an offense. You've been walking around with a wound. You've been walking around with something that has been festering. And here it is. When it festers long enough, do you know what it causes? Division. It always causes division. Offense will always end up leading to division and more division and exponential division. And that division ultimately leads to isolation because that's the end result of what the enemy would want, people to become isolated in places. Do you know why? Because the enemy's scheme. We're not unaware of his scheme. His scheme is to divide and conquer. Do you know what the first part of that is? Divide. The second part is conquer. Do you know why you're conquered? Because you're divided and because you're isolated. And when you become isolated, the enemy, the Bible says, he is prowling around like a roaring lion. What's he looking for? Someone to devour. And just like any predator you would see in the wild, the one that they're looking to attack is the one that's off, isolated somewhere. That's the one he wants to pounce on. And so today, if you feel like through hurts, through wounds, through offense, through whatever it is, you have become the isolated one, God's Spirit is calling you to a place again to open up again, to begin to trust again, to experience healing again, to get to whatever point you need to because if that is causing you to become disconnected, even if it's not something that would have happened in church, but it happened in a relationship or in whatever, and for now you have trust issues. You won't open up. You won't become vulnerable again. You're, you're blocking off this key part of your life in Christ that's all about you connecting with others in a way that can bring about healing and transformation and true, true life change. 
So I'd encourage you, I'd admonish you to take those steps. God's word says in 1 Corinthians 1.10, I exhort you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you would be made complete and of the same mind and of the same judgment. This is a beautiful picture of what happens here inside of the body of Christ. And as they take steps in every one of these areas, you'll see that not too long, right as they're moving in a good direction, the enemy will throw something there. They'll be moving in the right way. And you know what I'm, I'm going to do? I'm going to pull this out because the enemy's not going to win. He's not going to connect for it today. We're going to pull that back out. But every time we, we make progress, he'll drop something in there. And it'll, it'll just be to throw us off. And it happened in the early church as well. In Acts chapter 2, there's a beautiful picture of unity. It's a beautiful picture of them coming together and sharing life. But guess what? Soon after, there are false teachings and false teachers that start to go around saying, yeah, maybe Jesus didn't raise from the dead. Maybe this, maybe that, maybe. And they're just sowing those seeds of false teaching, trying to block what God is doing. Then you see that even those that are the forefathers of our faith, they start to get divided. They start going their own separate ways. They aren't, they aren't as unified as they once were. These things can happen. But we always have this picture to return to, the place that God ultimately wants us to be and that we have to strive as the body of Christ to get to, in that place of unity, that place of coming together in this way. That leads to deeper senses of connection. And the third thing is, it's about the breaking of bread. And the breaking of bread means so much more than just a meal, so much more than just some food. And now here's what I know. We may not be good at some of these areas as a church, but every church that I know is good at the breaking of bread. They love food. And, uh, and when there's a church that is open, there's always food somewhere within that church. You can go there, um, and, and you can find it. After this service, you'll walk into the foyer, and you will see, uh, you'll see food. I'm sure you'll find food uh, that is there most Sundays that you can come to a meeting or whatever. So we have, we have breaking bread down, we may think, but but we have to really remove ourselves from what we've ever thought about this idea of breaking bread, of really coming together to that kind of meal. We have to go not in, in American standards and in Western mindsets, but in Mediterranean mindset, in, a, in, a, in an Eastern mindset, in the place where this was originally written and shared. It was a way different culture than we experience today. And the idea of a meal and someone opening their home was a very, very big deal. And it was a sign of great respect. It was a sign of great love. It was a sign of great honor that you would be invited into someone's home to sit down and have a meal with them. And so we see that during this time, this idea of breaking bread would be people sharing a great meal together, a meal that was born out of love, out of respect, and out of honor for one another. I had a chance to really put this together in my mind very recently because a few years back I went to Israel. When I was in Israel, I had the chance to stay in the home of someone in Bethlehem. It was in a small neighborhood in Bethlehem called Beit Zahor. And Beit Zahor is famous, I, I would say, because most of the olive wood figurines, you know what I'm talking about when I say olive wood? It's uh, most of the things that are carved out of wood that you, it would say they're from Bethlehem. Most of what you'd ever find, in, if you own any of that, it, that is on your shelf, is made in Beit Zahor. It's made in that little part of Bethlehem. And it's put into most of the shops, if you've ever been to Israel, that you've gone to. Well, the family I stayed with were very prominent in that neighborhood and very connected to that olive wood factory. And so uh, the one guy, his, his name is Nadal. I stayed with Nadal's mom and family. 
And Nadal is the one who really manages so much of that, especially here in the United States. So any Christmas season that I go to the mall, and you've been to the mall, let me see a show of hands. How many of you have seen those olive wood uh, stands inside of a mall? Is everyone following what I'm saying? It's just a place with all wood figurines. It says they're made in Bethlehem or in Israel. I go to one of those stands. I've been to ones in Pittsburgh. I've been to ones in New Jersey and I think one in one other state. Every time I go to one of those, this is how the conversation goes. I said, hey, are you from Bethlehem? Yes, I'm from Bethlehem. Oh, great. I stayed in Bethlehem once in Beit Zahor. I'm from Beit Zahor. Oh, great. You're from Beit Zahor. Do you know Nadal? I know Nadal. Then they pull out their cell phone and they show me Nadal's phone number. Uh, They all know Nadal. And so I've had that conversation with many people, especially at the Woodbridge Mall, uh, not too far from here. There's one guy that comes every year. So for three years straight, I have that conversation with him. He always remembers me. He even sees me as I'm coming. We catch up for a few minutes, and and I hear about how everyone's doing. Um, But this time that I was there, this Christmas season, by the end of our exchange, he pulled out a, a piece of paper, and he wrote down all of his information on it. He said, when you come back to Israel, I want you to come, and you're going to eat dinner with me and my family. I want you to come into my home. And I thought, well, that's really nice. He never said that to me before. It was in looking here at the word and to seeing what he was really inviting me into was a place of deeper honor, a place of deeper respect, him really now wanting to share heart to heart, life to life together. It's not just a pleasantry for an acquaintance. It's something you want to do when you're honoring and welcoming someone and really wanting to connect with them. And so this idea of breaking bread is a a great intimate meal together, a meal that's born out of love. And the early church had these feasts, and they called them agape meals, meaning a love feast. They were a love feast where they came together, where they encouraged one another, where they loved one another, where they, where they shared life together, where they ate a meal and celebrated one another, and they did all of it to glorify the Lord and to lift each other up. And in the midst of that, they would take the bread, and they would remember the Lord's sacrifice for them, and they would break bread and they would eat it. And it was out of that that they would take the cup and they would remember the Lord's sacrifice just as he told them to do. And they would drink of the cup. It was there at that love feast, at the agape meal, that it would really become a pinnacle of communion taking place. Communion wasn't a time in a service that they had. Church didn't look like this. It was them gathering together, singing, lifting up songs, praising God, listening to the word, eating together, and then out of that, remembering the Lord's sacrifice. Each time that they would eat one of these meals, they'd remember his sacrifice and take communion together. Isn't that a beautiful picture, church? A beautiful picture of what the body of Christ is and what we're called to be. And so it's about connecting with the apostles' teaching to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. And finally, to prayer. Connecting to God and with one another in prayer. We took the first part of this year and we went through the Lord's Prayer part by part because we wanted to understand really how Jesus taught his followers to pray. And at at a high point in that prayer, as Jesus is teaching his followers, he tells them to do this, to pray that God's kingdom would come and that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. He says, this is part of what we need to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That when we look here on earth, we could see a picture of heaven. And when you looked at the early community, the, the koinonia that was taking place in the book of Acts, among these believers, you saw a picture of God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. 
you saw that they were together and they, they committed themselves, they devoted themselves to prayer, not just for a few moments, but they would wait before the Lord in prayer. In fact, it was when they were waiting before the Lord in prayer on, in the upper room that the Holy Spirit fell upon them. It's when they were waiting on the Lord in prayer, even when they faced persecution, that they realized that their strength didn't come from anything else but the hand of God and the Holy Spirit's touch. And when they prayed, the foundations to the place they were praying were shaken. Come on, someone, our strength isn't in ourselves. Our strength is in God. And if we believe it, then we're going to pray that way. We're going to rely on him in prayer. I'm amazed. I'm amazed at how much time I can spend, and I'm sure how much time you can spend, worrying as opposed to praying. How much time and effort and energy and anxiety is wasted when we face situations and difficulties and trials and we just sit there worrying about how we're going to figure it out, how we're going to get out of it, how we're going to handle it, how all these things are going to work out, and we spend how much time praying about it? None. The things that are worrying you most, are you spending most of your time worrying or most of your time praying about them? Because the more we trust God, the more we're willing to come to him and say, Lord, I'm going to wait on you in prayer. I'm going to seek you in prayer the more we're putting our hope and our trust and our faith, not in our ability to handle it, but in his ability to be faithful, regardless of what happens. And so that's the place of prayer. They pray many times a day. They devoted themselves to prayer. It was a part of what connected them with one another and what connected them all around. And I want to tell you that the ultimate victory, the greatest victory comes in the place of prayer. It will overcome the enemy's scheme every time. It will overcome what he is doing we will be a victorious church if we're a praying church. We'll be a victorious people if we are a praying people. You will see God's work and his will being fulfilled in your life if you're praying and seeking his face more than you're trying to do it on your own and in your own strength. To pray in that way means we rely on him more than anyone else. And to take it one step further, we're not just praying to God individually. We're praying to him as a community and that means we're lifting one another's needs before the Lord. We're sharing our burdens together. Galatians 6.2 says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. You see, prayer was, about, uh, was the great foundational block to everything, and it brought about victory for those that connected together. There was nothing they could not get through as long as they were praying and seeking God. So we think about it. How are we doing at connecting for the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, prayer. How are you doing in those areas? Because when those four are connecting in your life, when they're working together inside of your life, here's what we see happen in the early church. Acts chapter 2, verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. That's directly after. They committed themselves to these things. This is the byproduct of it. In verse 4, verse, chapter 4, verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And abundant grace was upon them all. God's grace meets us when these four are connecting inside of our life. In verse 47 of chapter 2 of Acts. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those that were being saved. Lives were being saved. Eternities were being changed because of these things connecting in the life of the early church. So how are you connecting? How are you connecting with God? And how are you connecting with one another? 
Would you bow your heads and would you bow your hearts with me this morning? And would you take an inventory of your life and of your journey with God? And if you were to be honest in this very moment, you were to take that inventory, would you say that there's any area that is deficient, that is disconnected? Have you been not spending time in God's word, not looking to God's word for advice and counsel and wisdom? And have you been relying on all kinds of other things in this world to lead your way? That will not lead you to the right place. Get connected again to God's word. Do you find yourself isolated today? Do you find yourself far from others? Do you find yourself harboring hurts and wounds and internalizing them and not experiencing the healing? Maybe you're tormented today and all you want is freedom. So thankful that today the Lord could set you free. He could begin a process of healing in your life. It starts with forgiveness and release. And you have to give it to God even in this moment right now and allow him to begin to minister and heal and speak. And I believe that the Holy Spirit's already speaking to you, is already touching your heart and directing you. Today, have you not really felt that intimate connection and communion with other believers and even with the Lord? Maybe you feel far from God. You haven't been lifting him up. You haven't been having those normal times together with other believers, experiencing life-changing community. And through that isolation, you just feel distant, distant from God and distant from anyone that cares about you. Maybe God's calling you back to open up and to connect again, to get involved in some kind of community, some kind of group that you can do that in. How's your prayer life? How much are you relying on God? How much are you trying to rely on yourself or on other things? Would you allow these four to become connected in your life again? Today, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I want to just encourage you right now in this moment, if you know your heart isn't right with God, you say, I'm not connecting in any of those areas because I don't, I don't I'm not right with God right now. I feel like I don't even have a personal relationship with Jesus. It's possible. He died so that you could have it. Today, you need to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and confess your sins and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and that your sins are forgiven if you confess them to him and you'll be saved, the Bible says. So right now, I'm just going to say that prayer from the bottom of your heart. I'd encourage you to say it as well. Today, if you're saying it for the first time, if you're returning home to God, know that by this prayer of faith and by putting all your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, your life can be changed forever. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, I ask you to come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. They've separated me from you. But Lord, I'm coming back and I'm turning away from them. And I believe that you came and that you died for me. Thank you for your forgiveness and thank you for your grace. I will follow you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, would you come? And by the power of your resurrection, would you touch hearts and lives, Lord? Those that said it for the first time, those that returned home to you today, Lord God, would you meet them right now in a special way? Lord God, would today be the first day of the rest of their life in you? In Jesus' name, amen.